I'm Lynn Kawano with another episode of The Other Side of Paradise. You're still, you know, locked up. You still don't have freedom of choice. You still don't get to see your family. So for Hawaii defendants, it's always been somewhat more severe to do jail time in the federal system than anyone else. On June 1st, ex-police chief Louis Kealoha will walk into the federal prison in Sheridan, Oregon to serve his seven-year sentence. Co-conspirator Derek Hahn, another former police officer, will spend three years at the same facility. Joining me now with more on the conditions at Sheridan and the potential danger for them is Alexander Silver. A retired federal public defender, Ali has had hundreds of clients imprisoned there in Sheridan. Tell me about federal prison for law enforcement. You know, is there still a danger? Because we know the danger is not the same as going to a Halava or OCCC, right? Federal prison is safer, but is there still a danger that exists for them? There is a danger. Um, I'm surprised that they elected to go to a normal, regular prison like Sheridan, as opposed to the prisons, because there are prisons in the federal system where law enforcement people who have been convicted or high-ranking politicians can go to so that they're safer. Uh, apparently, I guess they didn't want that, and they decided to go to a normal prison. And it's going to put them at risk in general. Um, it's a little different for Hawaii people because in Hawaii, you know, you have families where you have some law enforcement people in the family and you have some people who may be on the other side of the law. And we all know each other. Everybody kind of is familiar. So even though one person may be a police officer and one person is a burglar, they may all be kind of understanding of each other. But having said that, they're going to a mainland prison. There are mainland gangs. There are mainland prisoners. There's African, you know, uh, African-American gangs. There are drug gangs, there's uh, Native American Indian gangs, there are Hawaii gangs, there's all kinds of things going on in a federal prison. And while federal prisons are normally safer and better controlled overall than any kind of state prison that you have, there are still incidences in federal prison. And so while I think they, these officers probably won't get harassed so much from Hawaii state prisoners, although you have to remember Hawaii state prisoners, even if they're federally convicted, usually have a long rap record of state convictions, which is HPD. So some of them may not be so friendly to HPD officers being incarcerated with them. But it's really the other prisoners from the mainland who are not going to be so tolerant of a cop in their prison. Uh, so, um, you know, I'm hopeful that nothing will happen. I've represented many, many people who cooperated and were fearful that when they went to jail, something would happen. And it's it's extremely rare. Um, but there is a chance. Right. It is extremely rare in the federal system. You know, what about a club fed, right, we call it? Uh, you know, it's not like Halava. It's not like Ochipusi. Are, are they going to be, you know, playing tennis and, and all of these great things that, that we saw on 60 Minutes when they did right. the special on club fed? When I first started practicing back in 1989 in Hawaii, there were those places and we would fight to get our inmates sent to those places. And I would get Christmas cards from hospitals where they were working on staff and in, in the gift shop. Uh, and, uh, but those days are pretty much gone. And certainly at Sheridan, which does have a camp. So Sheridan is a big facility and they have a penitentiary, they have an FCI 
and they have a camp. So there are three levels of prisons in federal. There's a penitentiary, which is the most severe. Then there's the federal correctional institutes, FCIs, which have three different levels, high, medium, and low. And then of course, the least restrictive is a camp. Camps do not have cells. They usually aren't enclosed with barbed wire or anything. You can work. You do a lot of the day-to-day -day chores of laundry. You can even drive a truck and go get the fruits and vegetables for the prison. But the days of tennis courts and golf and gift shops and all that is gone. Uh, it's obviously much easier to do your time at a camp than at a institution where there are bars and cells. But you're still you know, locked up. You still don't have freedom of choice. You still don't get to see your family, and especially on the, for Hawaii. It's always been a problem for Hawaii because there is no federal prison here that holds people long term. So every Hawaii defendant who's been sentenced to anything more than two, three, four years in jail gets sent to the mainland. And it's hard for family to see them. It's hard to make phone calls. So for Hawaii defendants, it's always been somewhat more severe to do jail time in the federal system than anyone else. Because if you're a mainland prisoner, you know, someone can drive to your prison. Someone can just hop on a plane and you're there. But for a Hawaii defendant, there are other ramifications to being sentenced to jail, even if you go to a camp, that make it a little bit more uncomfortable. Louis Kealoha's wife, former Deputy Prosecutor Catherine Kealoha, has already been jailed since June of 2019, the day after the guilty verdict. She was sentenced to 13 years. Do you feel that the Kealoha's got a just sentence and the police officers based on what they did to Gerard and to Florence? I can understand people's thoughts that Catherine should have gotten a longer sentence given she was convicted in three separate indictments, given her making up an alias of a person that doesn't even exist, Allison Lee Huang, who notarized fake notarized documents, wrote letters on behalf. You know, she uh, ripped off several families. She had people go in front of the grand jury and lie. I can see that people might think that she deserved more than 13 years, but even 13 years is a long, long sentence. And the chief got seven years in prison. Uh, that's a long time, especially at his age and given his position. Um, and I think the police officers who, you know, to some extent were following orders, you know, you know, got lesser time. So, I, you know, I, there was a gradation of punishment, which I think was fair and just. Um, given the sentencing guidelines, which were applicable at the time, and we have these very complicated but strict guidelines, you know, it tells the judge where to start. And he went up on Catherine. He went up on Louis. Not a lot, but he did. So it wasn't like the judge didn't punish them more severely than these guidelines called for. And as a defense attorney, you know, look, I don't want to see anybody go to jail. I think these people happen to deserve it. But, I, you know, jail is jail. It's not pleasant. It's not nice. It's a long time for people at this age to go to jail. So overall, I'm very satisfied with the sentences that were imposed. And let's talk about the sentences imposed, right? 13 years for Catherine doesn't actually mean 13 years day for day, even though there's no parole in the federal system. Um, there is, there has to be some incentive for good behavior. So there is a way for her to bring that down. Correct. Explain that. Right. So let's take her sentence, for example. 
we don't have parole in the federal system. So, for example, like in the state of Hawaii, if you get a 10-year sentence, you might get out at three years, uh, maybe a little longer, depending on the parole board. But there's this built-in parole system where you get out early, the 10-year sentence doesn't mean 10 years, and you're going to be on parole. In the federal system, if you, you know, for 13 years, all you get is 54 days off a year, good time behavior, if you can, you know, behave yourself in prison. So there's a small incentive. So well, the way we do it is, we, let's just say 54 days is two months. It's an easy calculation. So if you take 13 years um, and you take two months per year off, it's roughly 26 months off, a little bit more than two years that she can get off if she behaves. So the 13 years becomes 11 years. Now, in Catherine's case, she was incarcerated the day after she was convicted. And by the time she went into sentencing, she had already served almost two years in jail. So you take that 13 years, it becomes 11. You take the two years off. And from the date of sentencing, she's going to have to serve nine, month, nine years in jail. Now, there is a possibility she could come back slightly early, six months to a year early, to go to a halfway house. It's still part of your sentence, you're, you know, but it allows you to reenter the community, find a job and get established, you know, but you're still under control and you have to live at the halfway house. So, you know, essentially from the moment of her sentencing, she was looking at nine real, nine real years more in jail with maybe coming home after eight and a half years. So we're looking at maybe 2030 that she'll probably be likely back in Hawaii. Yeah, I would think 2030, as long as she behaves herself, yes. She has lost a lot of weight. She also changed her hair. She changed, you know, you see defendants go in like that. It was a dramatic difference for me because I've seen her for so many years prior to this as a high-ranking deputy prosecutor, state official, to kind of see you have to blend in, I guess, with everybody else to make it in federal prison? Right. I, I think, you know, what's interesting is most prisoners gain weight, you know, except for those few who really exercise and go to the yard every day and come out buff. Most inmates actually gain weight when they're in prison. I think with, with Catherine, what you see is there's, a, you know, the stress. The you know, when you first go in, there's a lot of stress because you, you're in unfamiliar territory. You don't know how you're going to be treated from one day to the next. You've got issues with the guards. So I think what you saw with her was stress. Another thing, too, Ken Lawson says this. He's been in federal prison. You know, he says the food sucks, but you you also have to find your place there, right? He was a lawyer. Catherine was a lawyer. Could she find a job there where she can do some of the appeals for the people? Could she pretty much build herself up as someone the the in other inmates like, look up to, and, and really could benefit from? You know, first of all, there aren't that many women prisons in the United States. And women prisoners, you know, there are very few women prisoners. And they're different. There's a much more of a camaraderie among the women inmates. They don't have the fights that the male inmates have. They don't have the gangs that are in male prisons. So I would expect Catherine to be fully accepted into the community and to, in fact, because of her skills of being a lawyer, she's probably going to write legal briefs and memos and research for other inmates. And of course, when you do that, you get special things. She'll get cigarettes and money and things 
So I think, you know, Catherine's going to be treated quite well uh, as long as she doesn't act up. Uh, you know, Catherine, <laughs> I, you know, when I was investigating Catherine before she was a witness, there was two sides of her. There was the, the people, including my wife, who was a judge and had Catherine appear in front of her, who said she's the most wonderful, nicest person you've ever met. And I met a lot of people like that. But then there was the dark side of Catherine, the, you know, the other side. And people would tell me horrible stories of things that she had done uh, or said that, you know, it was very schizophrenic in her behavior. So I believe that she can do really well in prison and probably will if she doesn't become the dark Catherine. Yeah, I've I've seen that side too. I mean, she appears extremely sweet. She's got that sweet voice. She she speaks to people. Um, but then, you know, she was sending emails under other people's names and and trying to manipulate things. It it's almost like um like she she has two personalities. Right. I mean, there's uh, there's something going on there because you know if you create an Alison Lee Wong, uh, there's something going on. Because if you remember, Alice Lee Wong wrote letters as if, you know, it, backing up Catherine to the Office of Disciplinary Counsel when there were complaints, she wrote letters, you know, to the governor, you know, and to the Senate when she was being confirmed for the top job, you know, in, the, in one of the offices under Lingle. So when you have a person who's doing that and thinks that that's okay, there's something wrong. Um, and, you know, it may not rise to the level of a mental illness that interferes with your ability to live in society, but there's something more going on than meets the eye. Do you feel that Louis didn't know? And because Catherine is so manipulative that at the beginning, Louis didn't know and then it was ride or die, right? You know, do you, what, what point do you think that was? Right. I mean, we had never uncovered evidence during our investigation that Louis was in on the actual frame job of setting up the mailbox to be stolen and getting it stolen and saying it was Gerard. We didn't have any evidence that he was part of it. It doesn't mean he wasn't. We just didn't uncover it. Certainly, we believe that when he discovered it, which we believe was the next day, that he got involved and he actively participated at that point in obstructing justice and the frame up because it didn't make any sense. His stories about how he learned about it and what the next steps were that he did were completely inconsistent and illogical. And so that indicated to us, all right, the next morning he knew what had happened if he wasn't in on it. And he actively participated in the destruction of evidence. I know that the FBI, because of the text messages and the phone calls, believes he was in on it. Um, but we did not know that. Uh, we just surmised, based upon what happened, that he had to have known about it. And and you also have to remember, and I detail this in the book in great, you know, and go into how this happens. But we had subpoenaed various documents from HPD, and for example, the hard drive. We wanted the videotape hard drive, and the o official response we got from HPD with a sworn affidavit from HPD was that no hard drive existed. Well, of course, at the trial and then the FBI uncovered that the hard drive, in fact, did exist. It existed when we had the subpoena and it was intentionally destroyed by videotaping over right out, you know, when they knew we were getting a subpoena. 
there were other documents I've subsequently learned we subpoenaed from HPD, and in response to our subpoenas, those documents were destroyed. How does that happen if the chief of police doesn't know or isn't authorizing it? So to me, he's all in on the obstruction and the frame up once he's aware of it. It's just a question of when did he become aware? The fourth co-conspirator, ex-HPD officer Bobby Wynn, will also start serving his sentence June 1st. He'll self-surrender at a facility in South Dakota. That's episode four of The Other Side of Paradise. Mahalo for listening. I'm Lynn Kawanek.